Have you ever lost your way in an airport, subway, or hospital? Then this is the episode for you. Welcome back to Design Lab. I'm Bon Koo, your host. I hope you're enjoying your summer. Thank you for listening to the podcast, supporting the show, for telling your friends and colleagues about it. The best way to support Design Lab is to go on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review, give us five stars. Today's guest is Katie Osborne. She's the principal and wayfinding strategist of Via Collective, which is a Brooklyn, New York-based firm specializing in wayfinding strategy and design. Her passion for wayfinding is at the heart of improving people's interactions with the built environment. Katie is a believer in collaborating with experts to create ambitious, user-centered, and experiential design solutions. Katie wants us to know that wayfinding is more than just signs. She has presented her ideas and projects at national conferences for the American Planning Association, for the American Institute of Architects, and the Society for Experiential Graphic Design. She has a BFA from the University of Wisconsin. She's taught typography and design at the College of Visual Arts in St. Paul, Minnesota. She currently serves as the Director for Communications for the AIA New York Transportation and Infrastructure Committee. Before you listen to our conversation, go to our show notes, find the link for the Design Lab newsletter, and sign up if you haven't done so already. Each week in your inbox, you'll find cool stuff to read about design and health. Now, here's my conversation with Katie Osborne. Katie Osborne, welcome to Design Lab. I'm so excited that you're on the show. Thank you so much, Bon. I'm super excited to be here as well. It's going to be a great conversation. You are a wayfinding expert. I think about wayfinding all the time. Uh, (laughs) Before we take a deep dive into this, how would you describe what wayfinding is? The way that I talk about wayfinding is that wayfinding is a set of tools that help people navigate through space, right? And so very often we will be brought into a project to design for an interior of a building or a complex in a public space. And so there are usually like boundaries around that. But the way that I like to talk to my clients about wayfinding is that It's ultimately about the entire journey. So what's the original awareness that people even find out that something exists? And then what are all these tools from that level of awareness all the way until they make it to their final destination within the space that they need to have in order to have a successful experience? Mm. Some of the worst wayfinding, I think, is in hospitals. No. (laughs) Every day when I work in the hospital, I have someone ask me where something is. It's Mm -hmm. so complicated. Even for clinicians, I have a clinician colleague and he had to draw a map to find out where the emergency room was at in his hospital. Because as a consultant, he would get lost trying to find the emergency room. Sure. Why do you think (laughs) wayfinding hospitals is so bad? So, well... I don't want to generalize because I'm sure there are some hospitals out there that are going to say, hey, we have great wayfinding. I don't know of one. I've never been, I, I've never, I've never been in one I've where the wayfinding is great. So maybe, maybe there's some out there for the listeners. Email me if you do. Absolutely. One. Send us those case studies, people. But I think there are two major reasons why hospitals have a difficulty with wayfinding. And first and foremost is the context of the experience. Hospitals are incredibly stressful spaces, right? You're not going to a hospital because you got free time and you're going to go see the architecture or like they have a great like art display. 
hospitals are like, they're intense and they are stressful. And even the people that work there every day, they're within their own silo of situations where Mm. they're only going to their own places. And so they don't really even have a sense of the massive complex that they're in. So the stress level for the people that visit hospitals, first and foremost, is really high. And when you have higher stress levels, your cognitive abilities just, you know, they get funneled, right? And so this is actually where I talk about toolkits, customer service as a having, you know, people that are helping people find their way at the information booth, but even at major intersections within a hospital or at major, you know, so many hospitals, especially on the East coast, buildings were built up right next to each other. You could walk through a passageway and not even know that you're in a new building, you know? Mm -hmm. So at major intersections, having somebody that's helping people navigate that space, that makes people feel safer. Mm -hmm. And so very often, you know, people think about wayfinding as just signs, but signs only help a certain section of the population and under stressful conditions, which is the majority of people visiting hospitals, those signs, they just can't take, like taking it all in is too much. Yeah. This is where the toolkit comes in incredibly helpful. The other piece is that you have these different user groups, right? So another big approach or big idea and strategy that we use within Wayfinding is really understanding who the user types are. Mm -hmm. You have your everyday user. However, they might may not know the full complex that they are working in, right? They may only have their one floor that they go to every day. Yeah. Then you have the visitor that's coming back for a monthly treatment. Mm. You have someone that is rushing there to, you know, help somebody that was injured yeah. or they're going there to see their grandma whose health is failing, right? So you have this massively diverse group of people mm. that are coming there. And when you can begin by understanding who the diverse user groups are, that is critically important to be able to find solutions that are most accessible and most useful for those those people. And many patients have disabilities. Many can't even read the signs or many can't walk or they're in a wheelchair and they're at some of the sickest moments of their life. Absolutely. And in fact, so the ADA, the American Disabilities Association, the one that guides that created the all of the rules and regulations around how we design information from type size to contrast to braille, you know, and that's within the graphic aspects, but even the size of hallways and, and cut curbs and all that. So they have an anniversary in July, July 26th is the 32nd anniversary of the ADA. Uh, and cool. so there's not only that, which is really about enforcing laws and regulations and, you know, a baseline, which is incredibly important. But we also consider things like universal design, which take into account how to create space for the most users in applying, you know, there's seven main principles within universal design. And I can share a link with you about that. And and that'd be great. We'll put that in the show notes. Yeah. And, and how that, how we can translate those seven principles into actual graphics, such as iconography so that people with low language capability, they can, you know, they don't necessarily need to read the sign. If they know, if they see a particular icon that they can relate to from a universal perspective, right? Mm. So there's all of these capabilities or all of these design principles within universal design. 
And then just this past week, at the end of June, I spoke on a panel about inclusive design, Mm. which is really about flipping that concept on its head. It's not about designing for the majority of people. It's really about looking at who are the specific groups that need the most assistance. Mm. Are the majority of your users low visibility? Are the majority of your users financially, like the, the concept of like, you know, if not everybody has a smartphone and although it's, we clearly, a lot of people do, but if not everybody has a smartphone, not everybody would have say a credit card on their phone, or maybe they don't qualify for credit. So they have to pay with cash or they have to pay with a check. But what if it's a, you know, you can't do that in these situations. So again, by understanding the the very specific disability and acknowledging that disability versus trying to erase the disability, you are actually designing for an inclusive space, for a safe space for people. So these are some new design principles that we're looking at as to how we can create wayfinding systems that do work for the majority of people, as well as a nuanced group that is requires a high level of, of information. Are there certain trade-offs that you have to make when applying these design principles, say of inclusive design, that you're designed for one specific user and that may not be generalizable to the largest set of users? I will have to say that if there is something that is going to benefit one person, it will most likely, I most likely benefit all. Like mm. as a fully capable, you know, my full body capability, white woman, I can move through this world very easily. I have it very, very, very simply, right? Mm -hmm. However, those bump strips that are on the subway, the yellow bump strips in New York City at the subway edge, those help people that are visually impaired. Mm -hmm. However, if I'm, I don't know, doing something, digging in my bag, looking at my phone, my foot tells me I'm very close to that edge. So it's going to benefit me regardless, just not in the same way that it benefits the people that it was originally designed for. So Mm. I'd be open to the conversation if somebody has a comment about what that might be, but I can't think of anything that truly doesn't benefit. If it benefits one, it it probably benefits Mm. all. Mm. Yeah. I know if you've worked with some medical centers, can you give some case examples of the work that you've done on wayfinding at hospitals or clinics? Yeah. So I think the one that I, I like to point to the most when we talk about the work that built strategy around wayfinding for hospitals is the work that I did with the late Sylvia Harris. And Sylvia Harris was an amazingly prominent wayfinding strategist who unfortunately passed away, I believe it was 11 years ago. Mm-hmm. And I had the privilege of working with her for the last three years before her death. And she and I worked together on New York Presbyterian Hospital uh, at 68th in New York. And we did a lot of user testing and user research from testing a set of icons, even things like, you know, the icons for like, we needed an icon for like the prayer space, right? Mm. The diversity of religions is immense in New York City. Yeah. Right? And the people that are coming to a hospital, you know, they have a need for this. So we had a series of icons and one of them were prayer hands, which is, Mm. you know, pretty common. However, 30% of those, the people that filled out the survey actually wrote that as washing hands, not prayer. Oh, fascinating. So 
again, like understanding who our audience was versus making an assumption based on my experience, designing for our users, that's where we get the information is from the users themselves. Mm. So another research tool we would use is, now this sounds a bit stocky, but it's not. (laughs) We would hang out at the information desk and listen to how people were given directions from the information desk. And then if we knew that that destination was a typical destination where people got lost, we would then follow them at a distance Mm -hmm. to see where they might stop, look around, confirm that they're on the right path, where they might ask people. Um, We had an ambassador standing at a particular intersection. And if we queued them, they were dressed in hospital, you know, so it was very official. It wasn't some stranger walking up to them saying, Uh you know, are you lost? Can I help you find your way? That ambassador then would take down the content for us and understand like what happened, right? So that way we could really see like, you know, again, under stress levels, people's memories, they're just focused on like, I need to get this sixth floor, but I have to make how many turns before I do that? Do I have to like go to the third floor and transfer to a different elevator bank? Are you kidding me? How am Mm. I supposed to remember all that? Right? So There were different research methods that we used in order to understand how the architecture was either assisting or impeding people to navigate the space, right? So there were different research methods that we used in order to determine what the final designs would be. I have a really good case example of how better wayfinding actually reduced violence in the emergency department in my book. It was a group in the UK system where they had these better wayfinding, these journey maps, and actually reduce violence in the emergency department because one factor that fueled the violence was patients didn't know what was going on. They're like waiting, they're confused about their journey. So simple graphic elements actually improve the overall state of the emergency department. Absolutely. A positive outcome of wayfinding is a sense of safety and a control over your own space, right? So when you have Things like countdown clocks on the subway platform. Someone knows, oh my God, I have 20 minutes to wait here. Like that feels odd. Or I want to go run an errand at first. Or if they see the list of names on a patient docket, you know, then they know, okay, I have, I'm number five on the list, right? I mean, who doesn't hate getting on a hold line to say, we will be with you shortly? Only to realize that it's been 35 minutes and you're hearing this message every six minutes. It's infuriating, right? So having levels of communication that provide a sense of safety and control over how people could spend their time greatly reduces their stress levels. And I can completely understand why it would diminish that eruption of violence. Yeah. There are such confusing places. Like you don't know what's going on and absolutely trying to embed yourself in that journey of a patient. I think there's some easy wins that Absolutely. we can have. And I want to highlight, there's this, when I think of extreme wayfinding, there's a hospital in Philadelphia that actually sees a lot of gunshot victims. Okay. And in front of the emergency department, they have a sign that says police emergency drop off here. And on the, they have like a police drop off signage on the actual driveway itself because they studies have shown that when police do scoop and run, when they pick up a patient who's been shot and bring them to the hospital, 
they have better outcomes than if an uh, ambulance crew gets there. Wow. But it's it's a sad state that we have to have that in Philadelphia, but there's like a special designated way for police cars to come to the emergency department and drop off patients who've been shot. Yeah. So that's like this extreme example of, yes. of wayfinding. But also that means that that space is always going to be available because hopefully nobody else will pull into that space. Yes, exactly. Again, it's about the police getting there and knowing exactly where to go. And it makes it really smooth and really easy and, and can help save lives. So yeah. that I think is really, that's an important piece of it. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I will also say that, you know, again, like as wayfinders, we think about more than just the signs or the tools, the digital products, that kind of thing. We also coordinate a lot with the other aspects of the physical space. Mm. And one of our clients, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, they have been taking a real hospitality approach to their interior design, which mm. has been incredible. And again, it's about that sense of safety and reducing stressfulness and intuitive architecture actually reduces the amount of signs within an architectural space. And what does that mean? Intuitive architecture. Intuitive architecture, like there are sight lines that can show you, like uh, when you walk into a space and you can immediately see a physical structure with a person standing behind it, you know that's the information desk, mm. right? Mm. So even if that information desk is 100 feet away, the physical structure of that space is large enough where we don't need a big sign above that desk saying uh, yeah. information desk, right? Or having walls that are like slatted paneled walls allow people to see past the space and actually have a, a sense of, of, okay, what's hiding behind that wall? Mm. Or can I go back there without having to poke my head around the corner kind of thing, right? If they're looking for a restroom, large scale graphics that can be seen from several you know doors down from a hallway, again, like there's a visual cue and that architecture space allows people to feel more comfortable. And so yeah, I love that. It's like making your spaces user-friendly. Like yes. we think of that as products, often these technology products, like our computer or smartphones, you pick it up and you intuitively know how to use it. But I love applying that for spaces that Absolutely. you go into a space and it's intuitive of where to go, or where something is. Absolutely. Architecture is absolutely a key element of wayfinding. You know, you see a big, gateway. Like everyone knows that the arch right around West 4th street, that is Washington square park in, in Manhattan. Uh, right. So there are architectural cues that tell you where you are. And that's the same, same thing happens with interior spaces as well as those physical cues. When I visited Seoul, South Korea, maybe this was maybe about four years ago on a trip. I love the subway system there. It was so intuitive of where to go. And my Korean is so bad, so I could read the signs, but not really understand them. Uh -huh. But there were enough visual cues everywhere, so I knew where to go. And I was thinking, why do our subway systems, they're not as intuitive with the wayfinding, I feel. So do you have examples globally of awesome wayfinding? So first of all, I say I'm a big transit nerd. That's ultimately like where my heart is within wayfinding. Yeah. <laughs> so, little backstory. My father was a pilot for Northwest Airlines for 33 years. So we grew up like our road trips were flying places, right? Mm. Because we could do that. And so first of all, as a side note, I love road trips. I just got back from my, like a 10 yeah. day Outer Banks, North Carolina <laughs> love that place. But because we flew everywhere, 
I spent a lot of time in airports and it was sort of like, this is how sort of my brain kind of worked of like, oh, this is the information that people need to know. And this is how they're being introduced to a city. Right. Mm -hmm. And so very early on, I could be like, where are we going? I don't understand this, you know, this airport and this airport, but subways also have been just something that I've been obsessed with after I studied in London in college, the London underground from a branding standpoint, from a a navigating with the line maps, all of those things. And I grew up in Minneapolis, so Uh I didn't have, you know, I, I've been in New York since 2001, but growing up in Minneapolis, I even used the bus like before I got my driver's license. Right. So I've always been interested in transportation. And I think that again, if I can just go back to the the discussion of users before I get to great wayfinding systems Uh is the users that go through a transportation hub, their needs and their stress levels and how they perceive information is totally different than hospitals. So, which is why we need Mm -hmm. to really think about who the visitors are in a space, how they use the space, how frequently they use the space and who are the unique groups within those users that we can design for. So Mm -hmm. within, you know, the best of the best, there is some just really incredible, you know, the, the Tokyo subway is always touted as like, from an information standpoint, you can go there and not speak Japanese and absolutely navigate, you know, your way Mm -hmm. around Mm -hmm. things like color coding, iconography. I believe they use Roman numerals in some of their signs, but there is a ability to visually translate information that has allowed Tokyo to be a very easy to navigate city by those that, that are not native to the city, right? Or native mm. to that language. Also, there is a, uh, it's actually, it's just a really fun approach is in Narita. And I believe it's in Terminal 3 in Narita. There was a design firm that did these, um, in order to get people like walking in a particular space so that they could kind of traffic control, they mm. created like this racetrack graphic on the floor, which again, like people think of wayfinding as like, here's a sign or here's a digital map or here's an app. But like, there are ways to like, think about the way we help people navigate a space through graphics, which is yeah. just fun. And so, that was what I experienced in Seoul, like on the floor yeah. itself, there yes. were ways to direct where to go. I thought that was so, so clever. I was thinking, why don't we do that in the US? Yes. So things like various amounts of density can help or deter where you put information, Right. Because if the density is super high, you need a certain visual distance in order to make the connection that that's where you need to be going. Okay. But there are certain characteristics about people, especially in crowds, like people just follow crowds, right? So if you get people going in a certain direction and there's enough contrast of color so that the eye visually, you know, differentiates those things, people can, they'll just see things happening and then they'll, they'll follow. And, you know, this is also why there's multiple tools within the toolkit. You might have the floor graphics, but then you also have the overhead signs and you might have somebody directing traffic kind of thing, right? Mm. You have all these different aspects of wayfinding that can help people navigate a space. And, you know, I used to say like, and I still say this sometimes, if I did my job well, nobody knows I did my job Mm. because they are there for the experience of catching their flight, uh, seeing their grandma who just came out of surgery, of you know, visiting a museum, visiting a park or, you know, what, or meeting their team to go play soccer. So ultimately we are helping people have an experience, which is 
also why I think of wayfinding as more like customer service hmm. as an experience, right? So, but ultimately that's what we want is we want people to enjoy the experience of their life and we want to help them get there through wayfinding. Do you have any examples of your favorite bad examples of wayfinding systems? <laughs> well, I mean, I don't like to talk bad about anyone. <laughs> there may be some airports that I think are pretty horrendous. <laughs> Do you, is there a specific well, okay. example? Without of... naming names, I will just describe how the signs look. How okay. All right. So, I was actually doing a, doing a presentation about wayfinding and I found an example of a sign that was, I mean, it really looked like someone had taken every single like trick in Photoshop and they had made beveled edges and they had just drop shadows and they had all these colors and they had mixed alphanumeric systems on a sign. The type was too small, like for visibility from a distance in terms of where it was placed, all mm -hmm. these things that so I, I use this as an example of like, ultimately, it's about clarity of information. Mm. There's color coding that needs to happen in order for people to have a memorable experience and being able to equate a particular color that is also then repeated. And repetition of information is very important. Mm. So I'm making this point, And then the following week, I'm taking a trip to a brand new airport that I've never been to in the South very central in the South. And I get off the plane and there is that sign. <laughs> You've got to be kidding me. So I have relatives that live in this town and I've gone back there many times. And this, this airport is now, I've been seeing new signs come into play and I will say they are improving, but I don't know who came up with drop shadows and beveled edges and <laughs> But that was just not, that's just not appropriate. <laughs> Absolutely not. Who is responsible for wayfinding in these public spaces and in buildings and these large hospitals? Is it like an architect? Is it a design wayfinding expert like you? Or like who does this normally? Right. right. So ultimately, my field grew out of the concept of architectural signage that was just on buildings, right? This concept of a wayfinding and wayfinding strategy didn't really exist back in the 50s. Mm. And then there was a book by Kevin Lynch called Image of a City. And I'm going to verify that that is correct. But that is the first time in as a documentation that we see the word wayfinding being used. Mm. He talks about the different sections of a city, familiarity with place, placemaking, districts, differentiation of districts, all these things. So around that time, things started shifting and graphic designers started becoming more involved. So mm. the Society of Experiential Design, which is what typical wayfinders or placemaking and those kinds of experts and and designers, that's our professional organization, SEGD.org. We, that started in the, I believe it was in the late seventies, right? So this was a movement of a new approach to design and working with architects from a graphic language standpoint. And then, you know, the ADA, which again, 32 years ago was founded. Mm. It really became evident what people needed to be able to see visually and how letter forms could increase or decrease 
the visibility of a sign from a certain distance, mm. how tall a letter height had to be in order for it to be readable, or what's the distance between the letter forms in order for it to be readable. So there was all this nuance around typography that started to be discussed. And then it just continued to evolve. And I feel really lucky that I am doing the work that I'm doing right now. And in fact, I didn't even know that wayfinding was a thing in college. And I get that often. Like people say like, oh, I didn't even know that there was somebody like you that did what you do. You know, and wayfinding was not taught when I was in school. Okay. And actually it was Doug Powell, former interviewee of yours. Yeah, we love Doug. Yes. Who, after a conversation about being a graphic designer, which is what my degree is in, and I was sharing with him about the work that I'm doing around wayfinding. He said, well, why don't you put wayfinder on your card? And that was like the moment where I was like, yeah, that's who <laughs> oh, I am. That's so cool. I'm a wayfinding strategist. I work with graphic designers, but I love understanding the use of the space, the programming of the space, working with the architects to understand how can we make this an approachable safe space that serves the people that are coming to this space, right? How can I work with the lighting designers to highlight certain areas to increase flow and traffic in that direction? Or how can I work with landscape architects to create pathways that direct people to approach a building in a certain way, right? Mm. So there's all these people that we work with as sub-consultants on jobs. So who owns the projects? Depending on the scale of the project, which a lot of city projects are in New York, they're either owned by a developer, a builder, or an architecture firm who is working directly with the owner. So Mm. in New York, they have something called design build, which is the owner will hire an architecture firm and we will be on a team with an architecture firm as a sub. We will design 30% of the project. Then that 30% goes out to bid and is that is the finished design building happens with a builder and an architect and other subconsultants to finalize mm. and build that design. And those projects can happen in like two to three years, which is incredible. So we've been working on Penn Station for only about three years, which is amazing when you consider we've also been working on the Eastside Access Project, which is the new Long Island Railroad terminal underneath Grand Central. For I've been working on that particular project for over 15 years. Wow. Yeah. And, and these so, are some of, and for those listening who have never been to these transportation hubs, they are probably the busiest transportation hubs in the US. Yes, I would guess so. The scale, like, especially when you think about the scale of them relative to the amount of people that pass through them every day. Yeah. So, yeah. In terms of ownership, we occasionally work directly with an owner. So, we will work if within a hospital with Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center or with New York Presbyterian, we are working on projects with them. And those projects are directly with the facilities group. Hmm. Then there are other projects that we're working on, not within the healthcare space, but in primarily in transportation space, where we're working with an engineering firm and they are working with a builder who is then working with the main city agency. Hmm. So they're very complex projects when you get into those levels, right? We, of course, like to be as close to the owner as possible. Yeah. Wayfinding, it's it's important that we're at the table earlier than people think we need to be. And that is yeah. especially true when it comes to the intent is not to just place a sign at a decision point. 
The intent is to understand who the people are that are moving through the space so that we can create that toolkit that helps them navigate the space with the best tools that they know how to use when they need them. Mm. Is there a universal language around wayfinding? I think of hospitals and probably the most bold letters are the emergency room, right? Absolutely. And they're like red letters. And that is something that if you go to any hospital, you'll see probably some red letters that say emergency. Yes. Yes. I mean, there are definitely some standardized visuals and nomenclature that is used in hospitals simply because you can get sick anywhere. You could trip and fall. And, you know, a friend of mine broke her ankle while out of town and ended up at a hospital she's never been to. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, there are some standards around how you name places, the colors you use. But again, this almost speaks more to like ADA regulations of color contrast. Mm. Yeah. So there's color contrast and type size and the types of fonts you want to use that are most highly readable. Even things like using sans serif typefaces versus serif typefaces, mm. right? At large scale, sans serif is going to be more readable. And that is where you're going to see the majority of overhead signs in any large scale space will be sans serif. Really? Yeah. If they are serif, I can almost guarantee they were designed in a certain era, right? It was sort of like a trend, but also there's been so much research done around readability and signs that that concept of using sans serif is just kind of shunned a bit. Oh, I, I love this. I, I love geeking out about oh, typography. Yeah. I use typography actually too. So, oh yeah, I love type. So yeah. Can you give an example of how your process works? So if you're on a project around wayfinding, like how do you even start? Do you just try to, maybe it's in the, let's say an existing space and you go, Hey, we want to sure. improve how people get from point A to point B. How do you do the research? Like, what do you do? Yeah walk through the space first or just observe yeah. people? Well, so there's always the, the sit down with the client. The first thing we always do is sit down with the client. And, you know, I mean, even before we sit down with the client on, once the project starts, we've already had many conversations about like, what's going to be involved in the scope of work and what are the ultimate goals of the project and all of that, right? Big picture. But when we sit down with the client, we really dig into, all right, let's look at the architectural plans where the scope is. Let's look at, what your understanding is of the users that are coming through. We start to, to parse out user groups and pose questions that they may not have even thought about yet in terms of who they are working with or who their audience is. There can be a lot of assumptions uh, about the fact that if somebody works there, then they know where they're going, you know, whatever. But that is a user group that we have to work with. So we do a lot of stakeholder interviews so within an organization, we will go and interview different groups of people because mm. all of those groups of people, even though they all might work for the same organization, have different experiences, either navigating the space or they may actually have interactions with visitors. And so then they also have an understanding of what's coming from the visitor. So stakeholder interviews are very important to gather the information. Of course, all the architectural plans and everything like that as well. But one of the things that I love to do is just actually go and visit without anybody, like none of the clients, none of the, you know, 
not a map or anything and just be uh-huh. like, yeah, I want to see if I can figure out how to get to X destination. Mm. What does that look like? And so as a naive first time visitor, I will just go in and I'll just start looking around and I'll just try and start using the space as if I'm visiting there or, mm. you know, that that's what I'm doing. And so it's that naive approach through the expert eyes of what I know that I can then synthesize. This is what's missing. And I have the vocabulary to say, oh, here's a threshold. Here's a decision point. Here's, you know, here's a customer service space. Here's a vertical circulation. So I can apply all of that to what's missing or where things got confusing or did I have to double check or circle back or all of that? So there's there's multiple ways that we begin to gather the information in order to build out the plan and the develop the the ideas of how we're going to approach the solutions. Hmm. Can you talk about this blending of the digital and analog? So often when we're going into spaces with our smartphones, there's often a digital map or yep. instructions how to navigate a space. And yep. do you do work blending those two? We do. And in fact, we're just going to, we're starting a new project. I can't share the name or the any specific details yet, but we are starting a new project where we are teaming with for a hospital, a mapping project for a hospital. We're teaming with a digital mapping firm. And it's very exciting because this hospital, it's a complex in New York City that has a lot of buildings and they've been, you know, built together to create this space that looks like it's one large building, but it's actually multiple buildings. Yeah. And that's that's similar with my hospital where you literally as a patient may have to walk outside and go down the street to another building in the same medical center. Yes. Yeah. Or if there's a connecting hallway, you may not even know that you just ended up in another building. Yep. Oh, and on top of that, during COVID, all of the entrances except for one major entrance was closed. So if somebody got their appointment slip and the address was one of these closed entrances and that was not updated during COVID, they would show up And they'd be like, I just parked so I could be close to this place. Or I took the subway to be close to this place. And literally in New York City, like hospitals can, you know, span the area of multiple subway stops, right? So then all of a sudden they get out and they realize they have to walk another like five blocks to get to the entrance that is open for COVID Hmm. and, you know, for check-in. And it can be incredibly frustrating. So what we're looking at, at helping this hospital do is to understand Where are the key decision points and transition points to place a static map, to have maps available for their customer service groups, whatever, if that's like the information desk. And oh, and I will also tell you in cities like New York City after 9-11, security around buildings became really, really important. Mm -hmm. And so security guards actually became a frontline information center, Mm -hmm. right? For better or for worse, yeah. if the first person that you, you know, meet at a door looks official, you're going to ask them for directions, mm-hmm. even if that person is a police officer or a safety yeah. officer, right? Anyway, so there'll be there'll be maps at the static decision points. There'll be printed maps at the front desk, and then we're working with a digital firm to then allow for a QR code to be scanned because mm-hmm. everyone knows QR codes had a rebirth during the pandemic. Yeah. 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 And I that, never used them before. Now I use them no, all the time. <laughs> now I use them all the time. They're the greatest thing ever, right? So 
they they then can take that digital map. They can scan that QR code. That map shows up on their phone. And then they can take that map with them as they find their destination. Yeah. Right. So again, there needs to be, these things can't live in a siloed condition. There needs to be a connection between the static and the digital and the customer service and the physical signs and the maps and all of those things yeah. in order to help people, again, use a tool that is appropriate for them at that point in their path of travel. Yeah, that patient journey can start on the phone. Absolutely, it does. We often get these texts when our next appointment is, there yep. should be a digital journey. You should start right there, a link to like, well, how are you going to navigate this space and where to go? It's really confusing. Absolutely. And in fact, that is additional work that we did with New York Presbyterian Hospital when I was working with Sylvia Harris is understanding. We, we collected like hundreds of appointment slips and did an audit of all the different ways that all these individual groups had listed their address, if they included directions, what that looked like, you know, close by subways. And really what happens in departments is they will see a need based on their audience, right? So you have a, a facility that is primarily serving an aging population. So the size of their appointment slips might be larger, or they might have more specific directions, or they might have like bus routes for accessibility, things like that. Whereas if you have like a group that is more, I'm uh, thinking about like specific disability around like wheelchair accessible, right? So then it's like where are their parking spaces for accessibility or where mm. like the elevator routes versus mm. the stair routes in order to get to the space. So you, you see these departments actually creating their own information to address their population that's coming into their office or their department. We were talking earlier before we started recording about a podcast that you're working on. Can we plug that? So, okay. So it's a very early idea that we have. Um, not sure if it'll be a podcast, but at least there will be conversations. And we're not exactly sure how those conversations will be produced and published. But because we work with so many different groups of professions, right? Lighting designers yeah. and, and architects and urban planners and all those groups. We, I think it's important for them and us to understand how we can complement and help each other in designing these spaces for people. Mm. So because we are wayfinders and we are on a path, sometimes we run into intersections. So the conversations will be called intersection, a conversation with urban planners or lighting or whatever that might be and wayfinding. Oh, I so love it. We're excited. Um, I have so many amazing people that I've approached to have these conversations with, and maybe you and I, we could flip seats here and have this conversation from an intersection standpoint. Oh, that'd be so that cool. Like. Yeah. Well I, well, I love the name. I can't wait till it drops. Uh, We'll make a plug for it in our newsletter when it, when it comes out. Thank you. But, we will send you the information on. I'm very excited. Very excited. Well, thank you, Katie, for letting me dive into one of my favorite subjects. Way oh finding. my gosh. This is so much. I can't even believe that hour just passed. Yeah. Yes. So, so wonderful. Great, great conversation. Thank you again for the invitation. Really enjoyed this. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Katie. You can find more about her work on Twitter at via collective that's v-i-a-c-o-l-l-e-c-t-i-v-e and on instagram at via.collective 
And reach out to me on Twitter. I can be found at B-O-N-K-U and on Instagram at D-R-B-O-N-K-U. Design Lab was produced by Rob Puglisi. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston. The cover designed by Eden Liu. See you next week.